Let me add my warm welcome to you. I'm glad you're here. And I want to encourage you to uh, invite people that you may know who maybe were used to attending church before the pandemic, but uh, haven't had a chance to since then. I know there's many churches that are not able to gather. But we are. Praise the Lord. So I invite people to come and hear God's word. You know, in our day, it's amazing how ideas and trends can sweep around the globe literally in just seconds. Maybe you've heard of Paradise Sorority, or probably not. Paradise Sorority is one of the first Afghan female rap artists. That's right. She raps in the Dari language. She raps about life in Afghanistan. And of course, she's not the only one who's heard and learned and now is mastering some type of rap music within their own culture. There's Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, there's Krudas Kovinsi in Cuba, there's King Ghidra in Japan, there are the Higher Brothers from Chengdu, China, and the list goes on and on and on. Now there's rap artists everywhere in the world. Of course, I'm sure. All of them might have learned about rap as it spread around the world through the internet, through TV, through radio. It caught like a wildfire. Today, ideas and trends travel around the globe in seconds, but it wasn't that way 2,000 years ago. No internet, no telephones, no planes or trains. Nothing like that. God made the gospel spread, and God didn't need the internet. The internet doesn't have anything on God and his plans. We're seeing in our passage this evening how the gospel begins to spread beyond Jerusalem, and God is behind it. The main point that Luke wants to point out to us in this passage this evening is that the Spirit leads us to go proclaim Christ's gospel to unexpected people in unexpected places. The Spirit leads us to go proclaim Christ's gospel to unexpected people in unexpected places. If you're taking notes this evening, you might write down the two points for the sermon this evening, the Samaritans and the Ethiopians. The Samaritans and the Ethiopians, that's something. Now last week we heard Stephen's defense before the Jerusalem Council back in chapter 7. It was a recounting of Israel's sad history of rejecting the prophets that God sent to them and how they disobeyed the law that they had claimed to follow. And finally, Stephen finished up his defense by reminding them that God is not restricted to the temple. Is the Lord's. He's the God of the whole world. The leaders were prideful, of course, and resistant to the Holy Spirit even then, and so they treated Stephen like Israel had treated so many other prophets before him. They murdered him. And that murder kicked off widespread and 
brutal persecution that started on that day that caused many of the Christians there in Jerusalem to flee for safety. It was horrific. And yet, our God, our God is a God who turns what man intends for evil to his intended good. You know, we should lament persecution whenever we hear about it or whenever we see it or even whenever we experience it perhaps. And yet, persecution in the history of the church has oftentimes worked like what happens when you try to stomp a fire out. Sometimes when you try to stomp a fire out, all you do is you end up spreading. The sparks and the coals go here and there and everywhere and then little fires start out all around. Oftentimes that's what God does when persecution breaks out against his people. And those fleeing spiritual Christians began to proclaim the gospel beyond Jerusalem to unexpected people in unexpected places. And in our passage today, we're going to follow the evangelistic ministry First, as he shares the gospel with the Samaritans. That's the first point this evening. The Samaritans. And we see him sharing the gospel with them in verses 4 through 25. Verses 4 and 5 are really important. Look at them again. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In verse 1, in chapter 8, he, Luke reminded us that the apostles were not driven out of Jerusalem. In fact, unlike everyone else, they stayed to take care of the church. So all those who were driven out of Jerusalem were simply Christians. The apostles were the ones who had been preaching the gospel up until then, aside from Stephen in the last chapter. But now we see ordinary Christians filled with the Spirit are beginning to imitate the apostles by preaching the word about Jesus the Messiah. There's an important reminder here. The elders and the leaders in the church are not the only ones who should be equipped to share the gospel. Every Christian can and should preach the word. You may never ever preach behind a podium like what I'm standing behind now. You may never write up a sermon or a Bible talk. You may be a woman, someone who will never hold the office of elder, but you can preach the word. You can share the good news of Jesus. You can explain how there's a God who made everything and who created us in love, intending that we would live in perfect contentment and joy and obedience to Him. But how everyone decided to go their own way. We've all rejected the God who made us. Because of our many sins against this God who created us in love, we're alienated from Him. We're even enemies of His. No matter how religious we are, no matter what family religion we were born into, you can name Christ as the solution to our sin problem. You can talk about how God sent him into the world, how he was fully man and fully God, 
How he went to the cross to be a substitute for us, taking the punishment that we deserve, and how he rose again from the dead. And you can tell people about how their good deeds could never erase our sins, but turning away from our sin and putting faith in Jesus Christ grants us the forgiveness that we need in Every Christian needs to understand this to be saved. Every Christian can explain this and lead others to salvation in Christ. Now, there are a number of ways to share the gospel. You can come at it from different directions. If you're not really familiar with how to share the gospel, I would encourage you to write down this outline. First, write down God. Then write down man. Then Christ. Then response. God, man, Christ, response. And that's your outline. That's your outline. All you need to do is remember that outline. You can talk about who God is. You can explain Him in maybe two or three simple sentences. You can talk about man, His great work to God, and His sin. You can talk about Christ who he was, why he came, what he did on the cross. And you can tell people how to respond to this message, this good news, by repenting and believing in him. There's always more you can say, of course, and perhaps in any different certain situation, maybe you should say more, but that is the minimum that should and could be said in order to proclaim Christ. People can become Christians if they hear that message. It's significant that Philip wasn't an apostle, but that he was sharing the gospel. It's also significant that Philip proclaimed Christ in an unexpected place, in Samaria. Samaria was known as the home of Jewish heresy and false religion. Its history of idolatry started all the way back when God caused a split in Israel between the north and the south. The king of the north, Jeroboam, created separate worship sites and a new priesthood to serve at those worship sites, something that God had commanded to never be done. And all of that in disobedience to God's command. And then things only got worse from there when the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom and they mixed the population there with people from other nations. And so the people of Samaria, many originally Jews, began to intermarry with others who worshipped other gods, who followed pagan religions, and there was this big blend with the already corrupted Jewish faith that was there in the world. The people of Samaria were mixed ethnicities and their religion was mixed up as well. Jews hated Samaritans. You may remember that from the Gospel of John when Jesus' disciples were surprised that he went through Samaria and he stopped in Samaria. He shocked his disciples along that trip when he shared the good news of the kingdom in Samaria with the woman at the well. And now Philip was there in that same region doing the same thing that Jesus had done, only with greater clarity. 
And when they share the good news about Christ, the Samaritans believe the gospel. Philip's message was validated by the miracles that he carried out, and they all paid attention to Philip. And many believed, including a little magician named Simon. Of course, we read that Simon had performed magic signs for all the people there. They called him great. But nothing like what God had enabled Philip to do when he came into town. A great number of the Samaritans had believed and then been baptized. But Philip must have recognized that something unusual was happening. Something was happening not quite like what had happened in Jerusalem. Philip had been there, of course. The Holy Spirit had not fallen on these believers in Samaria, just like he had in Jerusalem. And so the apostles, Peter and John, two of the top apostles, I might add, were sent down to Samaria where they prayed and laid hands on the Samaritan believers. And when they did that, the Spirit fell on the Samaritans. This is a unique situation that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. You might recognize this as a passage that Pentecostal churches use to argue that people can come, become born-again Christians and then only later receive the Holy Spirit. But the first rule of interpreting Scripture is to use other Scripture to compare it to. And when we look at this passage carefully, we see that the apostles don't seem to disapprove of what Philip did, nor do they deny that he should have baptized the Samaritans. Later, apostolic teaching in the Bible and the New Testament clearly indicates that repentance and belief are always accompanied by the indwelling of the Spirit. Those things happen at the same time. And here, the apostles don't ever again in the New Testament require that when a new community receives the gospel, that they would necessarily need to go and inspect and see what happens. That never happens again. It's never recorded. The best explanation is that this is a unique situation in the spread of the gospel, and that in this particular case, God held back the spirit from these new Samaritan believers so that the apostles would be able to give a public declaration to the whole church and the Samaritans themselves that they were real Christians and that they were to be welcomed into the redeemed community on the same terms as Jerusalem's Jewish converts. I think what God was doing was he was preventing a schism in the church early in its life, in its infancy. seems to ensure that the newly formed church would be uniform, despite old hatreds and old prejudices. Now this explanation, I think, takes all the facts of our passage into account. It considers the historical context, and it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. This passage also reminds us that when we're reading about the beginnings of the church in Acts, we have to wisely decide when things that happen then in the text should be things that we expect to happen now, perhaps even every day, in the everyday life of the church today, versus whether or not these things that we read about might 
have been unique events in that special day and time. We need guidance from the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to help us make those wise decisions as we continue to read through Acts. And whenever we study the Scripture for that. Now from verse 18 on through verse 24, then the story of the birth of the Samaritan church deals with Simon the magician's response to the apostles. Simon seems to have believed and was baptized by Philip. But he sees a money-making opportunity when he witnesses the apostles come into town and lay hands on the Samaritan believers and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. And so he offers money if those apostles would then give him that same power. Simon then, of course, gets a very strong rebuke from the apostles. They tell him this. God is not like before God. They claim that he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, and they charge him to repent. Simon asks for prayer. He asks the apostles to pray for him, and nothing of what they have said happened to him. It's another, another really puzzling aspect in this passage, as if we didn't already have enough to puzzle over. Church tradition claims that Simon became a leading heretic and never truly repented. And Luke doesn't clarify either here, but it's safest to assume that Simon was not actually repenting. The situation with Simon reminds us that baptism is no guarantee of true conversion to Christ. Certainly. Baptism after you've repented and believed should add to your confidence that God has saved you. I know that's done that for many of you. But baptism should only be given by the church to those who have a credible profession of faith. Which, of course, is why when we ask people to come through an elder chat, we ask them, can you explain the gospel to us? And can you tell us how you became a Christian and how the Lord has changed your life? And we listen. We're a radical profession of faith. The situation that arose with Simon might have been a discouragement to the apostles and to Philip. But look at verse 25. Look there with me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The experience with Simon the magician didn't stop the apostles and Philip from continuing to preach the gospel in that region. They went on doing it. We shouldn't be discouraged from preaching the gospel either, just because some people that we thought became Christians eventually prove to not truly know Christ. So it's sad that happens. People walk away from Christ. But all the apostles, including Paul, experienced partnering with people they thought knew Christ, but who in the end proved with their lives that they didn't. In our statement of faith, it says that the grand mark of a Christian is that they persevere to the very end. That's the grand mark. And so we press on to 
Christ with anyone and everyone, just like Philip and the apostles. And that's perhaps the biggest lesson we can learn from Philip's work among the Samaritans. The gospel is for even the most unexpected People that you may think could never be saved. As much as we want to tell ourselves that we don't actually think that there are people who can be saved or it's highly unlikely that they'll be saved, the fact is, is that we all have those people that are unexpected. Think of someone right now. Think of someone right now. Someone that you would least expect. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write that name down. Write the name down of that person. Those of you. Is it a coworker? Or someone who's persecuting you? Someone who seems extra devoted to another faith? Who you think would never, ever leave their faith of their upbringing and become a Christian? Speak to him. Confess to him. Yes, Lord, you can even save that person. You can do it. And I pray that it happen. Now, keep praying for them. Keep praying for them throughout the week. If not only as a reminder of what God can do in the people that they least expect. But our author of Acts isn't done telling about the ministry of Philip at the end of this scene in Samaria. In verses 26 through 40, we learn about how the Spirit led Philip to share the gospel with another unexpected person in an unexpected place, the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian, you see that in verses 26 through 40. In that first verse, in that section, verse 26, an angel of the Lord instructs Philip to go to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, down close to Egypt. Philip obeys, and there he sees an Ethiopian man riding on a chariot. At that time in history, what they called Ethiopia is different than the country that we call man would have been from an area that we now identify as southern Egypt and northern Sudan. And this man is interesting, not only because of the region that he's from, but because he was a human, it says, meaning that he had been castrated. And he was in charge of the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. There again, there's a tricky part to this verse. Candace isn't a name. Candace is a title. Now this eunuch had come from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship. So we know that he was likely a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. And amazingly, the eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah there in his chariot. The Spirit then speaks to Philip again and says, Go join him. And so Philip does. And the conversation starts getting interesting when Philip asks if the man understands what he's reading. Philip sees that he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verses 32 through 33. 
That's where we see Isaiah 53, it's verses 7 and 8. Follow along with me. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened his mouth, his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away. The unit wanted to know who the author was speaking about, himself or someone else. Oh, don't we all read this and we think, well, I evangelize all the time if God would create these kinds of opportunities for me. People who would come to me with their Bible open and ask me to explain messianic passages in the Old Testament. It's amazing. This is about Jesus, the suffering servant who would go to the cross to die for us. The one that Philip had been proclaiming up in Samaria. Philip didn't need any more specific instructions from the Spirit, did he? He knew an evangelistic opportunity when he had walked into one. And Luke tells us in verse 35 that Philip began with this very scripture and he told him the good news. And the Spirit is leading this evangelistic And the Spirit leads us in every evangelistic opportunity. We're never alone when we're sharing the gospel. The Lord is at work. Even if it's just you and one other person. Take heart. You may feel alone in those situations. You may wonder if you're going to make a mistake that somehow prevents someone from receiving eternal life in Christ. You won't. You won't because the Spirit is at work even now in the world, leading the church to proclaim the gospel, leading Christians like you and I to share the gospel. Another thing that's important to notice here is the importance of Scripture. Our evangelism is most effective when we're encouraging people to understand not just our claims about Jesus, but the claims of Scripture. My personal experiences of evangelism over two decades now have borne out that my evangelism has been most effective when people let me introduce them to Christ in His Word. It's always more effective. Maybe that's because I'm just not that great of an evangelist, or maybe it's because God's word is powerful. Think about it. One easy question to ask to someone that you're engaged in an evangelistic conversation with is to say, Would you be willing to read a bit of the Bible with me and make a decision for yourself about what you think it says? Would you be willing to? And then take them to a gospel to read about Jesus. Take them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of them. Or take them to Genesis 1 through 3 to read about the God who created everything and about mankind who disobeyed God from the beginning and how God, even in the garden, treated Adam and Eve with graciousness and kindness by clothing and If we learn to take people into the scripture, we're letting God speak for himself. 
We know the Spirit is at work in the unit because of what comes next. He must have repented and believed. Luke doesn't describe it. But Philip must have also explained to him how baptism was commanded for those who trusted in Christ because when they passed the body of water, the eunuch asked to be baptized. And so Philip baptized. And when they came up out of the water, Philip was mysteriously whisked away to another nearby town while the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. This baptism is another slightly unusual situation that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. Someone who's encountered for a short period of time who professes Christ and then is immediately baptized and sent on their way. As with the other situation with the Spirit that we read about in our passage earlier in the Samaritans, this seems to be an unusual event. Immediate baptisms of an evangelized stranger with no ongoing contact. It's not necessarily what I would recommend. Normally we would say that churches are authorized to affirm new Christians' professions of faith and offer to baptize them. Either churches or maybe missionaries who have been sent out to share the gospel in unreached areas with unreached people. But this is so early in the life of the church that Philip is acting as the authorized Christian who's baptized. There are only the beginnings of churches in Jerusalem and scattered around Samaria now at this point in history. And the unit is going back to a land where there aren't any churches. Now, there might be situations where we would consider baptizing someone who's returning to a similar situation as the unit is returning to in this passage. But normally, if you lead someone to Christ, we would urge you to bring them to the church to join in a Christian community, to be baptized, to become a member of the church, and begin to grow. That seems to be the normal pattern that's painted throughout the rest of the pages of the New Testament. But this is an extraordinary time and an extraordinary situation. God is solemnly orchestrating the baptism of perhaps the first evangelist to go back and share the gospel in Ethiopia. As you think about this whole chapter that traces the evangelistic ministry of Philip, do you see the Lord in charge of the evangelization of the world beginning? Philip's evangelism was brought about by the persecution in Jerusalem. And we should be gospel-sharing people at all times, in all places, in work, when we're at play, when we are in the midst of disasters, when we experience delays, when we're near and when we're far. Expect opportunities wherever you go. Expect opportunities tomorrow. opportunities in the least expected places and times. We see in this whole passage in chapter 8 that the gospel is for everyone, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture. Philip was led to share the gospel with the heretical next-door neighbors of the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, and the unit from a royal court in Africa. 
brothers and sisters, teach yourself to see everyone as a possible born-again child of God. Someone the Savior could save. The Spirit led Philip to share the gospel as a solo evangelist and in a team when Peter and John joined him up in Samaria. He shared the gospel with crowds in Samaria, and he shared the gospel one-on-one on a desert road leading down the gospel. He shared the gospel in cities, in towns, and in lonely places. There's no bad time or place to share the gospel. And God was making it all happen. He was directing his spirit-filled servants to share the most important news the world has ever heard with the most unexpected people in unexpected places. And he's still doing the same thing. The Lord is in control of drawing men and women to himself into his church all over the world right now. Today. Today, people came to Christ. In the world. And tomorrow, people will come to Christ in the world. And people will come to Christ every day until Jesus comes back. Because God is in charge of the spread of his gospel. Praise God. Praise God. This should give us great confidence to share our faith, to see that God is in control. And it should give us a great hope. That as long as Jesus remains at the right hand of the Father, there are more souls to be won for Christ. Oh, let's pray, church. Let's pray that the Lord would give us the great privilege of seeing some of that happen in our day, in our city, and in our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are strong. We praise you, Lord, that you haven't left us with the gospel to share throughout the world, but you are in charge. You are compelling us outward. You are inspiring us with your scripture. You are giving us confidence and boldness in the spirit. You are giving us the words to speak when the opportunities come our way. Oh, Lord, we pray for a great harvest. A great harvest of people who are like us and unlike us. People that we might expect to come to you and people that we least 